It's 1700 in Tokyo, 10 a.m. in Zurich, 9 a.m. here in London and 4 a.m. in New York City. You're listening to Monocle Radio. Monocle on Sunday starts now. And a very good morning to you live from London. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. I'm Emma Nelson. And joining me in the studio, Latika Burke and Simon Brook to go through the papers. Uh, Latika, hello. What have you found? Good morning, Emma. Well, I'm intently studying all this speculation that Xi Jinping may skip the G20 in Delhi. Thank you very much for that, Letika. And how about you, Simon? Yeah, well, the schools are going back uh, uh, in the UK here at the moment, and so is British politics as well. So there's an interesting analysis of the state of British politics in the Sunday Times. Why has my heart suddenly started to sink? We'll also be heading to Bavaria to hear from our editorial director, Tyler Brule, fresh from the Monocle Quality of Life conference in Munich. And James Chambers will bring us the latest from Asia. This is James Chambers, Monocle's Asia editor in Bangkok. And with the news coming pretty thick and fast here in Thailand, I'll be bringing you the latest from the Thai capital. It's the 3rd of September 2023, live from London. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from London, this is Monocle on Sunday with Emma Nelson. And a very warm welcome to Studio One. Let's uh, introduce today's panellists. I'm joined by Latika Burke, a journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Very good morning to you, Latika. Good morning. I'll be hearing about your Tokyo travels in a minute. They sound fun. Uh, And by the journalist and and communications expert, Simon Brook. Very good morning to you, Simon. Good morning. How's your summer been? It's been very good, thank you, I have to say, except the last few weeks have been pretty miserable here in the UK, haven't they? It's felt more like autumn or even winter at some points and of course next week's going to be absolutely wonderful so I just feel sorry for all those kids who uh, are going back to school when the weather is 30 degrees. They have playing fields. Um, let's go to Bavaria now. hard woman. <laughs> I'm awful yeah. aren't I? My son had his first day at his new school on Thursday. They sent in the army. They made him do an assault course. I think that's brilliant. Um, we go to Bavaria now to hear from our editorial director Tyler Brule. Uh, a very good morning. Guten Morgen Tyler. Guten Morgen Emma. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, I, I can, I'll set the scene. I, I, I tried to, or at least I did send you a photo just before we went on air. I'm, I'm just in front of that very famous bench. You might recall uh, there was an image from one of the G7 summits. Uh, I'm at Schloss Delmau. Uh, and where you had that, that wonderful picture of, of uh, Barack Obama, arms stretched out, being looked like he was being lectured uh, by, by Chancellor Merkel. Uh, so I'm standing right in front of that bench. Uh, glorious view uh, over the, well, the yeah, pre-Alps or certainly uh, the, the Bavarian Alps uh, anyway. And um, somewhat basking in the gorgeous, gorgeous morning here. Summer has definitely uh, returned to the stretch of Europe as well. And um, yeah, and basking in the afterglow of what was uh, 72 fantastic hours in Munich up the highway. It was an absolute, it was it was blisteringly fast. It went by like a flash and we've all got very sore legs from all the running around. We were in the, um, at the headquarters of Allianz in Munich, weren't we, doing the, the, the annual Quality of Life uh, conference. Um, we'll get to the people in a minute because they're obviously the, the, the huge, huge part of all the, 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 just the sort of like the meat and drink of the whole thing. But the building itself, I don't think I've jumped up so many stairs in my life. No, I mean, you can see that obviously Allianz has built something 
into this. Uh, maybe it's part of a longevity message. Uh, there was a lift. It was well hidden. But, uh, yeah, I think a, a conference center spread over uh, four levels is, is, both, is both a good idea in terms of keeping uh, delegates and speakers and organizers uh, fit. But yeah, if you have multiple costume changes, it's rather, um, it's rather complicated. <laughs> this is what I was going to ask you, because not, not only were we uh, treated to uh, a wonderful talk by a leading cardiologist who told us to do exercise, so I just felt as if we ticked that box without even trying, but also a, sp- a pair of stairs, a set of stairs is an excellent training ground for an excellent pair of lederhosen. Now, I know that you have absolutely won the argument about whether we should be wearing tracht or not. Um, I completely give in. You were right all along. You always are. Um, but just tell us about, just 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 walk us through the tracht event this, this weekend. It was, it was, it was a real highlight, wasn't it? That we all, we all sort of had a, had a wonderful moment when everybody, well, those who turned up in Dandles and tracht really did steal the show. It's true. I mean, we, we started on Thursday evening um, at, at the wonderful Schumann's, uh, and it was absolutely gorgeous. And it was amazing that we had you know, Bavarians, Germans, uh, some who even traveled across uh, across borders from Switzerland, who set the tone, as you said, uh, showed up in fantastic uh, Dirndl uh, and, and later Hosen. And then the, the momentum started, uh, because then by, by Friday, and certainly Friday evening, uh, when we had, uh, the, I would say, sort of the wonderful sort of gala dinner, not quite gala, but uh, it was um, it was great to see, uh, of course, uh, many many more uh, Durndals uh, and and later Hosen, and even yesterday for the for the farewell uh, as well. And I have to say, there is a complication when because I, I did as I said, a couple of costume changes. Now, when you're used to just wearing you know a pair of chinos and a normal a normal button down or whatever, um, it you, know, you you kind of know how to get in and out of things. But there is there is a certain complexity when you have a knee sock with tassels and you have. Uh, and, and just putting later hose on um, is, is is not like just sort of like yeah, whipping up a pair of uh, normal trousers. How long? Okay, you started this. We'll carry on. I'm going to bite. Um, <laughs> talk us through it. You, 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 okay, you try getting a horn button through a doe skin uh, button opening um, at. Speeds, uh, when you've got to get back down on stage, and there is probably like seven buttons to jump. No, no, it's no easy feat. Do you need a help? Do you need friends or a hand? Uh, you, you, you do. You do need. I'm getting into dangerous territory here. You, you asked uh, for it. <laughs> no, I, I think um, the, the, next year, or if we're in, in any place that uh, involves uh, other aspects of national dress, uh, certainly of the Germanic variety, uh, then we're going to need. We're going to need dressers for sure, Emma. Okay, fine. That's on the that's on the shopping list. And it, it, so much happened in seventy two seventy two hours. But if what's the one thing that's floating right to the top of your mind as the highlight? Oh my goodness, it's um, it, it's remarkable. If I go, if I rewind. I think seeing our Robert Bound on stage uh, with Charles Schumann, who is you know, pushing mid eighties now and just looking superb in a sort of I would say a sunny mustard uh, yellow corduroy pin suit uh, on a Friday afternoon and, and mixing cocktails uh, on stage in front of everyone with Rob Bound. That was just, it was an amazing uh, end to the day. Uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed just listening to, and, and maybe the audience response to, we had Dallas Mayor uh, Eric Johnson, uh, also with the Mayor of Bratislava um, on stage as well. And just the, the pragmatic, no-nonsense uh, approach um, of, of this mayor in terms of how he is leading and governing um, his, his city, which I just was fascinated. And then I had also the pleasure, of course, of then sitting 
with the mayor uh, over dinner as well, uh, with many glasses of Weissburgunder, and uh, he was on Negronis. Um, and then, <laughs> then I got a more of unvarnished view of, of, of course, leading one of the biggest cities, uh, and one of the fastest-growing cities in the United States um, as well. And, and I guess maybe the third point, start of the morning almost, was having Aurelia Rauch uh, from Bergos Bank uh, talking about branding and talking about the power of advertising, but particularly the power of copywriting, how we have how we've sort of lost, of course, we've lost humor in a lot of advertising, as we know. Um, but also everything is, you know, is down to five or six lines. It's having that, that sort of one zinger payoff. And, and she was showing us, again, just going, why are they called copywriters? Where you had actually on a print ad or an out-of-home ad, seven, eight, nine lines of copy to read uh, and, and how that was able to drive a message home, uh, crack a smile, uh, maybe even generate a belly laugh. Uh, those, those are three things that stood out, Emma. Indeed, I would, I would absolutely um, concur with the Aurelia Rauch um, conversation, the creative director of Bergos Private Bank, famous within Switzerland at least for creating fabulous confrontational um, adverts that really don't mind making you sort of drop your coffee when you see it. And she talked about the idea of creating a bold statement, which is then followed by something clever. But she also talked about, as you said, not just the importance of copyright, but the fact that we are also now dependent on images that um, you get, I think what she called it, a dictation of spirit. If, you, um, if you're given an image, then you're, you, you're just likely to, to, to follow it. But, but words don't give you that dictation. No, and what was great is she, she was also showing her, her current campaign work off the back of all of these great ads for Porsche and, and Lufthansa uh, from, from the late 60s, 70s, even, even into the 1980s. Uh, and then, of course, during their campaign, which, as you said, absolutely does not rely on, on any imagery. It is just black, bold text um, on, you know, on white or, or any number of, of, of backgrounds. One of my favorites um, that she put up on stage is a private bank. <laughs> Nouveau riche, question mark, better than no riche. And yes, and, and speaking to her afterwards, you know, you can just tell that she absolutely adores what she does, which was also... Um, Dare I say it, very, very much a presence in the in the room during the conference. And talking to people who come, who you know, travel from right across the world to join us and uh, who, who want to be part of it, they were really impressed by how, how much of a... I think the one word that we got was family from, from delegates who are coming to meet the Monocle team. And, I mean, from the outside, it must be astonishing to come and actually see how another company really works and when Monocle puts on uh, the show and when Monocle drives the agenda. If you're running another the company, you get to sort of see 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 the sort of like the nuts and bolts of the monocle operation. And the one thing that people said was that we recognise all the names, we recognise all the voices. There's a family feeling to it. Did you get that impression as well? Absolutely, and that is, uh, and that certainly, of course, from the first timers. And and I maybe it was a a third, or or yeah, maybe about a third, I'd say, had never been to one of our conferences um, before. But I think also it, you have the family feeling. Because my goodness, as you've witnessed, now <laughs> there is a hardcore of people who've been to the the previous seven, um, not to mention many others. And so I think that there is a definite level of, of, of camaraderie. And of course, we can speak about this. We can speak of the speakers all we want, but uh, this thing really works because you have delegates who are fully engaged. No one is in a breakout area or sort of pacing the halls on a conference call. No one's looking down at their phone was what is amazing being that incredible amphitheater at Allianz. Everybody was in the room uh, and, and eyes forward, focus, listening, um, you know, on always on cue, fantastic questions. And of course, 
this this has to function and work uh, on stage in the setting. But then, of course, what happens over the lunch period, um, you know, during uh, the coffee breaks, and of course into the evenings, you know, this is also part of the fuel. And this is where I, I, I you know, our I call them our delegates, but they they are family so many ways uh, and 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 they really make the whole weekend indeed because i mean it's not just in the room um but it's on the dance floor and dara said yesterday afternoon it was on the pedalos too we had delegates who were happily um, sort of getting their knees active and and pushing us around the lake yeah i that was a, the last uh documented image that i saw of you yesterday I thought, <laughs> okay is 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 am going to you know and, and listeners you you've you've of course, heard um, well, Em and I are together every week on this program, but we were physically together for pretty much two weeks because thanks to an air traffic control glitch in London uh, early last week, uh, Emma missed her flight, but then she had to get to Munich anyway. So, oh, stuff it. I'll just stay for an extra day and jump on uh, SBB and make my way uh, to, uh, to, to Munich from, from Zurich. Indeed, and uh, we will talk in a moment about the joys of train travel. But Tyler, I shall let you have a well-earned rest in Bavaria. Thank- well, it's it's it's, it's, jump, it's jumping in the car now. Uh, uh, there's no way I would. Emma, I, I was thinking yesterday. I was thinking, oh, it'd be great to just see. It would be good to go to Schlossalma. It's just nice to be. It'd be great to get back home to Zurich and jump in the car, go for it. I, I literally, you know, after two hours, we, I was so happy that we pulled up on the gravel at the hotel here uh, and was, was ready to collapse. But feeling fresh today and uh, we'll be back in position to chat to you this week in Zurich. Delighted to hear it. Uh, our editorial director and chief Lederhosen sporter, Tyler Brule, uh, on the line there from Bavaria. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. Let's bring in the panellists. Um, one of the highlights that uh, was mentioned at the Monocle Quality of Life conference was... Uh, Tyler went through some of his favourite things, and one of them was a, the uh, the the dining car on an SBB train uh, between Zurich and indeed Munich. I experienced it for the first time. I nearly wept when I saw the white tablecloth. So I was like, "Can you imagine anywhere else on earth? Or, or rather, wouldn't it be nice to imagine anywhere else on earth where you could, when you go and get your cup of tea or your cup of coffee from the from the." From the from the from the food bit of a train, that you actually get to sit down and someone brings you the tea in a cup and you sit and you drink it, or indeed you have a little glass of wine and maybe there's a touch of salami and possibly an olive, and you suddenly find yourself in a wholly different place to what we find in so many other places on earth. Um, Simon, you're just nodding with with a look of sort of complete agreement, if not Completely. slight desperation no, at the rest desperation. of the country. If only we had these wonderful trains. <laughs> I love this idea. Big fan of murder on the Orient Express. I wasn't bothered about the murder. What I liked was the, <laughs> the white tablecloth, the, the, the chaps immaculately in their braided if, jackets If one of us stops and... talking by the end of this programme, you know <laughs> well, that the suspect who is. Done it? We, know we're, we know we're on a restaurant car in, in Zero it is his bananas, isn't it? That that fight, but it's the space that that moment creates, and that that little that you, all you need is one restaurant car, which clearly costs an awful lot of money to run, but the transformative effect on the passengers is really quite something because you leave a train ready for your next chapter, don't you? I think there is something wonderful to be said about an era where the process of travel was also part of the experience as opposed to a means to an end. And I really discovered this actually when I went um, to New York via cruise as opposed to flying, flew back but but sailed over. And in many ways it's, it's extremely decadent to have that much time to just 
do the bit of traveling before you actually get to your destination. But it does, uh, it for me, certainly reminded me of an era where that must have been quite a lovely leisure part of the whole experience as opposed to cram yourself into the tiniest seat possible, take as little luggage as you can because someone will sting you another 80 quid if you dare take a, another suitcase on or a shopping bag on, on board and won't be tired if you want to get duty-free because that'll cost you too. I mean, it has got really mean, hasn't it's it? It's so stingy. Travel has become so stingy now. It's yeah. true. Especially it's, air travel. I think there was this case yeah. in the UK, a, an elderly couple filled in the wrong form with Ryanair and we charged £55 to print out the their boarding pass, which is outrageous, as you say. And I think uh, the idea that you can... One of the things I really liked was being on the Eurostar once and hearing some Americans say, oh, we're, we're going, we better go and get back to our seat, and realising, no, they don't have to. They're on a train. They can carry on standing around, chatting, sitting on the arm of somebody else's chair. And it's just it's just so much more civilised, isn't Indeed. it, really? I mean, I'm, I'm, currently, I'm not even going to tell you what situation I'm in following the... Uh, what, what should have been a Zurich-London-London-Munich uh, journey, as Tyler said earlier, became a, Z- a Zurich-Munich uh, journey and quite a lot of unexpected um, hotel bills and what have you. And that fact that, you know, not only did some of the hoteliers see the literally dozens, dozens of people who were trying to get into hotels in Zurich realising that they'd been, you know, they were stuck, but the general acceptance that you were never going to get any of this back. You were just, someone somewhere would say, right, we're going to make sure that you can't, no one can claim for this kind of thing. Because there were, some people were saying that 200,000 people are going to be stuck until the end of next week. I mean, I cannot imagine what that must be like. So when I had this 25 minutes, well, it was actually two hours. I like, it was great. That, that Those two hours sitting in the restaurant car, just looking out of the window and realising that someone had said, would you like to have a nice time while you're travelling? <laughs> <laughs> it was it was like a nice, refreshing surprise. Although I must ask, on a five-day cruise, Latika, what do you do? It was actually seven, I believe. And look, I had the same worries because I, I struggle to take holidays. It's a real problem for me. I get very, very restless. And I'm one of those people that my company says, you must take leave, Latika. <laughs> You're on a kill list for leave. Um, surprisingly, there is a lot to do. And I found that time was not a problem. One of the nicest things to do was actually just sit on the lower deck um, in inside and watch the waves at eye level. And they were huge, mountainous waves splitting in the air. And it's a, it's a visual that I've never seen before quite like that. I mean, you could sit there and watch that show for an hour and it's just nature and it's yep. very... Um, it was brilliant. There's lots of things to do. There's lots of talks. There's lots of films. Uh, there's lots of shows. Some varying quality about those. Endless restaurants. Um, a very good gym. And you also just stroll around the deck, which in the middle of the Atlantic in blistering wind is quite fun. Actually, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a challenge. It's not for everyone. I wouldn't say I would go cruising all the time, but there was a wonderful joy at 5 a.m. in the morning coming into New York and seeing the statue. Of Liberty, almost kind of alone while New York was still just glowing green. It was absolutely exquisite. And that's an experience I don't think you would get just flying into New York, you know. Well, I'm hooked. Simon, would you do the same thing? Because my idea... Oh, definitely. Oh, really? Yeah, I think, and it's the view as well, I think, isn't it? Not only are planes almost always so uncomfortable, aren't they? And that horrible air being recycled. And as you say, they sting you for every little thing that you might get. But it's the idea you can't... I mean, clouds, I love clouds. And I always get a a window seat so I can look out at the clouds. But there's only so many clouds you can see really in the two-hour flight, isn't there? But it's the idea um, of looking out of the window of a 
as you say, of a ship or or of a train or something. I remember one of those magical journeys I ever had was getting a train from Milan to San Moritz and just going through snow-covered valleys, swirling round as you ascended and then down the other side of the mountain and stuff. And, I mean, I think it was three, three and a half hours, perhaps four or something, but it passed in a moment because of this, just these incredible views, which, as I say, you don't get from a plane. So I think there's real opportunity for train companies if they get their act together, especially, as you say, uh, Emma, with the catering business, uh, take it up a little bit. Uh, there's a real opportunity here, I think, to appeal to a whole demographic that's just pretty fed up with flying. Indeed, really. not just fed up with flying, but also fed up with trains as well. The fact that you, it, it, it is very satisfying to be in a country where the trains work, <laughs> isn't it? It's a really simple thing. But, I mean, obviously I've just come back from Switzerland where everything works really really well and you just suddenly think oh how on earth do they do this one thing that i noticed is that they do really really well in switzerland is fields so this is so my husband and i you know you had the mesmerizing moment where you were looking at um waves Letica. Yes. so my husband and i were on a train we went we nipped over to austria for the night because you can when you're on holiday and you can when you're in mainland but you we went to the opera in bregenz and we're on the we're on the train coming back from bregenz to zurich and we go through these, nothing sort of like geographically dramatic areas of the world, but the way that the Swiss maintain their agricultural setup is frankly breathtaking. There is not one blade of grass out of place. Everything has almost been, you know, if there's a tractor in the middle of the field, it looks as if it has been deliberately placed there to be artful and also very efficient. And one thing that we also noticed was that the standard of living for the average Swiss cow appears to be infinitely better than anything that you'd ever experience in the centre of London. You don't just get a cow shed in Switzerland. You get... <laughs> A major architectural undertaking. You get these beautiful... I mean, we saw hundreds of them, so we had the opportunity to be wholly mesmerised by this. You have these beautiful individual stalls that the cows all get. But even better, you have floor-to-ceiling windows. So instead of being shoved in a dark barn, the cows basically enjoy a kind of like a hoff-house architectural open-plan joy of being entirely connected with absolutely everything. And I suddenly thought, when I want to grow up, I'm going to be a Swiss cow. Um, you've both looking at me absolutely silently, wondering what you're going to do about this. It, it is that wonderful thing that when people just take care of their their, their landscape, that it sort of instills a, a sort of nice pride. But then... My husband and I also decided, how have they got time to do all this kind of stuff? I mean, how, how long do you think it takes to, to keep a meadow in the like, pristine, tip-top condition? And I wonder whether it's something particularly Swiss. But when you do look at other, other places, you just think, have we just stopped? Do we just not tidy up anymore? I wonder. I love the idea that somebody created these beautiful scenes. The train company perhaps did, ready for travellers just to gaze out. You know, that the, the, the architectural detail and stuff was created specially for uh, people travelling on trains to make it more appealing. Mm, absolutely. And the idea that the Swiss take it, well, lots of people outside, outside the United Kingdom do tidy up a lot more after than they used to. More than more than arguably some of us do. I do think it's cultural, but Switzerland's also extremely wealthy. And yes, I'd like to live as a Swiss cow too, if the alternative <laughs> is, is, is sometimes what seems to be on offer in the UK. Um, but I do think that we do often shoot ourselves in the foot when we build new things and don't take into account the aesthetics and the architectural quality. And sometimes those things might come at a cost, but other times they don't need to. And 
there is not enough, particularly when you look around at some of the new builds in London. Um, there is just, it's criminal, the way that architectural beauty is overlooked in this equation from a country that set the standards in so many ways on architectural beauty. Um, it is absolutely missing. And as you say, when they extended out to fields and farms. I mean, they're going to be building those things anyway. So why not pay just a little bit more attention? Yeah, it does feel a bit more chaotic back here in London, doesn't it? I mean, is that the sort of scale or is that the fact that London, someone once said to me, I'll let you know when London's finished. Well, it, it never is, is it? Because it's, it's one of those cities where it's constantly in churn, constantly evolving. I mean, yeah, one of the cities that always impresses me actually is Prague. I, I think as you look Prague. around, yes. you look around every building, don't you? And you think, as you say, Latika, they've built the building and they thought, right. Now, how can we make it a little bit more distinctive, a little bit more appealing, add a bit of detail? And the detail never seems sort of added on. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. an afterthought. It just always looks beautiful, integral, fits in with the environment. And I mean, Prague is not the wealthiest city in the world by any means, is it? And it's had a very troubled history, especially during the 20th century. And yet, yeah, they just managed to add that aesthetic dimension, don't they? It looks complete. Which All city does it for you, Latika? I, mean, I love like, Prague. I get Prague for that one Prague, well. for me, is a is a number one, I think. It's absolutely beautiful. It, it also helps that you have a small enough river and a, a couple of very beautiful bridges. It always helps to have a castle. I find a city just can get itself together if it's got a castle because it could be absolute pandemonium down below. But you look up and you just think, well, someone wants bothered. And so shall we try and keep going with that one as well? Munich I found incredible insofar as... You, you were there in Munich a few months ago, weren't you? Yes. What did you think of it? I was really impressed by the, the, the scale of the buildings as well. It's very grandiose. Uh, I didn't love, didn't hate. It left no effect upon me. Hmm. It's quite difficult to get around. They're digging it up. Yes, well. yes. It yeah. is a very difficult city to get around at the moment. Other cities you'd quite go for? Well, uh, I was listening with envy, almost jealousy, at your train story because a couple of weeks ago um, we made a little trip down to Deal, which is in the seaside in Kent, not very far from London, uh, but you wouldn't believe the rigmarole it was to get back because the train, of course, breaks down at the station. They can't move the train at the station. It's there for three to four hours. So we all have to go back on ourselves and try and get back to central London. And this was around dinner time. So we were kind of planning to get to London and maybe have, have dinner when we arrive home. But of course, we're all delayed and there is no such thing as a trolley on the train, not even selling a packet of crisps, Emma. Um, no such thing as a, a hot chocolate or a glass of wine or even a bottle of water to be bought. All you have in the UK, it seems to be a lousy vending machines on the platform. And it's such a missed opportunity. I think people would really embrace train travel if they knew when they were travelling with their kids that they could buy them snacks, that there's going to be food there, that if things go wrong, it's okay because the train system has your back. And I'm not completely sure that Britain has figured that out. No, let's talk about the trolley. Um, the trolley used to sell what sort of food. <laughs> now I'm not quite sure it does anymore. The idea, I mean, that again, I'm just harking back to the two hours on the train. The man came along with the, he didn't give me a menu, but he just said, what would you like? And What was, did you eat, Olives? There were olives. I didn't have them, but the, the gentleman next door to me had a small platter. And this is on a train. A platter. A train wow. at three o'clock in the afternoon. And you, there was a small glass of wine, glass of wine, not plastic cup, not rammed on your knees, just a glass of wine on a train. And there was salami and there were olives and there were grissini 
and there was a napkin and there was a complimentary glass of water this on is a so train. European. On a train. It's the idea, as you say, it's the glass and it's the yes, china cups yes, and it's yes. the proper silverware Absolutely. and it's the napkins. I mean, that would just transform the whole experience, wouldn't it? I mean, I wouldn't even be that bothered about what I was eating, but just, as I say, coming back to the <laughs> murder on the Orient Express, that <laughs> level of of, uh, of catering would be wonderful. I wonder whether we can't up our game a bit, because I remember years and years ago when I was, uh, I was based out um, way out of London and I was posted uh, by a newsroom to, to, to live about two or three hours train ride away. And my husband and I used to try, he used to, when he had his day off, he'd used to come up with me for the, for the for, you know, just for a little bit of fun. And so what we used to do is as we were getting our, our train, these are in the days where there were, pla- there were, there were um, uh, what they call tables on trains, because normally it's all like <laughs> knees up against your a chin table. now. Yeah. Yeah, a table, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, a table. Um, I used to get a tablecloth and proper glasses and proper crockery and then I would go to and then I would bring a picnic. I'd have a roast chicken with salad and a bottle of wine and then in front of all the other passengers we used to bring our own tablecloth and we would have a proper dinner on the train and I just thought right this is a sort of a massive message to all the train operators all right sunshine you may have you know a bag of crisps and and no space and well, not even a bag of crisps in Lutika's case but I wonder whether it's up to us to actually up other people's games on this one and sort of inspire others to, to oh yes to, but then to... Emma you're getting into tricky territory because okay. <laughs> what happens when somebody brings on the smelly pizza the smelly tuna sandwiches all these things that happens anyway doesn't it, it? well it does but if we're going to to have a competition we could get some very smelly competitions going on here yeah we could i mean they ask on the london underground for you not to bring smelly food do they yeah it's written right. somewhere don't bring smelly food and of course everyone obeys that law don't all they? the time always who's got time to here. eat on the tube who's got space oh, well, to not, eat on the tube well oh, they goodness. haven't got the time they haven't got the space they haven't got any manners but they still do it anyway so it anyway. i was once weirded out when i got on the tube and there was just an empty watermelon skin <laughs> and I was like, I just want to know the story behind the person that one thought it was a great idea to bring a watermelon on the tube, eat it on the eat. tube, managed to maybe do this in a clean way and just left the skin. Okay. Ooh. That was quite the journey. Welcome to London, everybody. Exactly. Um, you're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson, joined around the table by Simon Brooke and Latika Burke. Let's head to Bangkok now where our Asia editor, James Chambers, joins us. A very good afternoon to you, James. Uh, morning, Emma. I was getting homesick listening to all of that chat, chat about the uh, dirty tube. <laughs> tell, okay, well, tell us, bring, uh, why do you ever get homesick? I've no idea, but but that's that's endearing. That's rather charming. Um, James, okay. Well, before we get into the, new, <clears throat> excuse me, tell me, tell us what's Bangkok's transport system like? Is it are we talking uh, full white tablecloth a la SBB, or are we talking uh, watermelon skin akin to the tube? I guess the slightly surprising thing about a lot of the subways in this part of the world is that they they tend to be treated very well. They're immaculate. So the one in, in Bangkok is is very clean. Uh, it's very safe. It's very nice. And that was the same in, in places like um, in Hong Kong and, and China and Singapore. So even in Bangkok, where the streets are, are a mess, very chaotic, actually, when people get on the, the, the BTS, as it's called here, um, I guess they, they up their game. And is it something, and also trains as well, is it something that you think, actually, this is going to be a pleasure today? Well, I mean, trains <laughs> are, are, are another thing altogether. I did take my first train uh, recently, leaving Bangkok and heading north, um, and I was in 
I guess the the second class cabin, which was the was the best on offer, and I did go for a wander, and it soon uh, strayed into um, the types of scenes you normally see um, in India. So uh, I will be rethinking my plan to take my family on the ten hour overnight to Chiang Mai. Uh, so there is a very big difference between the tube uh, or, or the you know the subway and uh, and the national train system. Okay, you've given us fair warning for that one. Thank you, James. Um, let's move to the news. Um, what's what's big in Thailand at the moment? We 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 have um, we've had comings and goings like you wouldn't believe at the top at the top upper echelons of power. That's right. I think everyone around the world will be keen to get back to thinking about Thailand as a place for summer holidays and, and warm weather and beaches. Uh, but you know, this summer in in, in Thailand has all been about politics. We had the election in May. Um, that dragged on, and obviously we finally finally got uh, the prime minister a few weeks ago, um, and now. Uh, it's all about the Prime Minister Seta Thavison trying to form his cabinet. Um, that was given the royal endorsement over the weekend, uh, and they will have their official swearing in next week, and then it'll be all about getting down to business. Um, how do they begin to get down to business when it's taken them the best part of four months to not agree on anything and suddenly have to be kind of forced together? Indeed, forced together. These are, you know, the, the main parties in this coalition uh, are former sworn enemies. You know, one was meant to be the, the kind of pro-democracy liberal party and the others were, the, were the, the military generals who ousted them in multiple coups. And now they're governing together. So it is a very odd uh, coalition. Um, and the, the the 11 parties that are in it will actually set out their official kind of policy statement uh, next week. But when you look at um, what Per Thai wants, that's the, the largest party in this coalition. That's the, the party of, of Taksin uh, Shinawat, the, the kind of famous former prime minister. Um, they're known as a populist party. They're, they're the people who brought in universal health care in Thailand. That's kind of their flagship um, that's the one that people still um, kind of know them for and like them for. Uh, and the policies that they want to bring in are, are very much of that ilk. Uh, that we're looking at, you know, minimum wages, minimum monthly wages, uh, a handout of about 250 euros to, to everybody over, over 16. Um, but the question will be how many of those per type policies become coalition policies? Because the, I mean, the conservative parties uh, and the military-backed ones will have their own ideas. And then one of the other bigger parties seems to be all about um, liberalizing weed. That's been their big thing. They've, they've um, kind of achieved it already, but I think they want to bring it into law. There was promise of great political reform, wasn't there, from top to bottom? Not, but is it? Are we now in a situation where pragmatism has to be king or queen? Um, and insofar as they will have to make sure that the stuff that is addressed every single day is addressed, um, and as a result, the bigger issues, the more existential issues that Thailand face, will be just kicked down the road a bit. Definitely kick down the road. This is, there's not going to be any of the, the reforms that the Move Forward Party, who who, the, who actually won the election, who, who got the most seats, promised. You know, they're going to be in opposition. Um, and all of those those kind of dreams and promises of, of reforming everything from the constitution to, to the military, to the civil service, those all those things are going to be parked. And um, I guess the coalition will focus on the economy, I think, for the for the lead party for Per Thai, that is one of their strong suits. That's what they're they're known for uh, under Taksin. The the Thai economy was booming and thriving, so they have that reputation. 
but the problem they have now is that uh, the Thai economy isn't booming and the world economy isn't booming. And the Thai economy is very much tied to that in terms of exports of manufacturing and, and tourism. So they're starting from a much weaker position, uh, but they're only shot, I guess, of redemption uh, for this this kind of sin of, of siding with the, the military coup leaders is if they somehow manage uh, to get the, the, the Thai economy ticking over. I mean, how does it, you mentioned those powerful words, there, you know, redemption and sin. Is it is it seen like that? Oh, massively so, yes. Uh, you know, this is, for, for Taksin, who's the, the patriarch of, of Per Thai, you know, he's he's built up his reputation as being the, the leader of, of the, the kind of democracy movement and and, uh, and the, the, the progressive person who's going to reform Thailand and oppose the military's involvement in the country. Uh, you know, Thailand operates on these kind of cycles where, uh, you know, you have a democratically elected government and it's ousted by a coup. Um, and and, and Per Thai and, and Taksin were seen as, as the good guys. Um, he, I guess, if you read between the lines, everyone sees his return um, to Thailand after... 15 years in, in, in self-imposed exile, essentially as a fugitive running away from some corruption charges. Um, they, they see that as, as this kind of secret deal that he's made with a conservative elite to be able to come back home. Um, and essentially he sold out what, he, you know, what his party has historically stood for, sold out all their supporters in exchange for coming home and having kind of one more crack uh, trying to, to influence uh, power in Thailand. So, um, I mean, he is not... Uh, he is not popular right now, um, and and the way he's come home has been just a, you know, throwing more salt in the wounds. Um, what? he, not, What's going to happen to him? Well, so he was facing eight, I think, eight years to eight to ten years when he came home. Uh, he was sent to a prison and didn't even spend one night there. So he went straight to a private room in a in a hospital, uh, and then on Friday it was announced that he'd applied for a a royal pardon, uh, and then he was quickly granted it. So the, the king commuted his sentence down to one year, which was seen as a bit of a surprise because people just thought he would, would have to serve no jail time. Um, so perhaps there was a few smirks at the prospect of, of him serving a year in jail or even in, a, in a hospital ward, as, as looking likely. Uh, but now there's suggestions that actually um, that, that one year might even be reduced uh, to a few months and, and come Father's Day here in Thailand in December, you might find that uh, that, that taxing becomes a free man. Um, you mentioned the sort of the problems down the road for, for Thailand and, and the economic strains that the country is under. Um, tell us about what's happening in the world of rice. This is a big issue, isn't it? It is, it is. I mean, the whole... The whole Western world, I guess, is, is is talking a lot about grain and wheat and how what's happened in Ukraine is affecting food prices. But obviously in this part of the world, you know, rice is king and, and rice is life for, uh, for, for a lot of countries here and a lot of people. And if I look at my own diet, I mean, I, you know, Monday to Friday, I probably eat uh, rice twice a day. Um, so rice prices are, are a big thing here. Uh, and the big news last month was was where India putting a, an export ban on some of their rice, and, and India is the biggest exporter, um, and that has led to to prices going up around around the world, and that's a big deal for Asia and and, and Africa. And if you see uh, President Marcos in the Philippines, he's bringing in a cap on on rice as of next week uh, because prices have been going up in the Philippines so much, and that really affects everyone's day to day uh, cost of living. 
Here in Thailand, it's a, a bit of a, a bit more complicated because Thailand is the second biggest exporter. So if India steps back, then Thailand, uh, you know, is it looks like it's going to benefit. And exports from Thailand have been, you know, going going rapidly up. Um, so that, so that the farmers are, are doing well. Um, but down the road, you know, everyone's talking about El Nino and how that weather pattern will have effects on uh, rice harvests in the future. So, you know, while the sun is shining right now, um, you know, you, I think the government of, of, of Seta Tavsim will have to be thinking about what happens in the future. Our agent editor, James Chambers, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle on Sunday. Spain is the land of sun, sea and sangria. And each visitor jets off to its sunny beaches and vibrant cities for a dose of that Spanish Buena Vida. Monocle's newest handbook to Spain is on shelves now, where we explore the best places to eat, shop, stay, and wander in this colorful country. Inside, we check in with the hoteliers offering luxury seaside stays and urban getaways, local creatives weaving the old with the new, and leading chefs plating up exciting new dishes. For those hoping to put down roots, this handbook also highlights the perfect neighborhoods for you to call home and gets suggestions from the entrepreneurs who have already taken the plunge. Head to monocle.com slash shop to order your copy of Spain, the Monocle Handbook, today. Welcome back to Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson, joined around a studio table by Latika Burke and Simon Brook. Um, Latika, where do you want to start with, with the news? Emma, I've been watching this story all week uh, as we've seen mounting speculation and still to this day not confirmed uh, by China that uh, uh, President uh, Xi Jinping may be skipping the G20 altogether. He'll send his premier. And that would mean Russia and China absent from the table at next week's summit. And of course, the host country is as much part of this story, I think, when you're um, factoring in why China may not be wanting to go. Um, And that is, of course, it's in Delhi, Modi faces election next year and uh, relations between China and Delhi, which some had thought might uh, be on the up or on the improve at at the very least following Modi and and, um, uh, Xi's uh, chat at the BRICS summit recently in, in South Africa. Not so if uh, Xi Jinping really does go ahead and, and boycott this. It will be a big blow, I think, for Modi and, and India. And it's been really interesting reading the range of interpretations across various press, uh, depending on country, depending on affiliation and depending on who's actually writing it. And uh, very happy to share a, a little selection of some of those. Indeed. And we've got those interesting situations that we talked about, you know, it's a blow to India, but it's a, it's a blow in three ways, isn't it? It's a, it's a blow to India. It's a blow to the G20's integrity and, and, and authority and what have you. But it's also, it's often seen, the G20 is often seen as a sort of a, regardless of the, na- of the kinds of nations which, which belong to it, as almost a, a Western block. And so if you have the BRICS, um, summit a couple of weeks ago when there was this huge call for a new world order and new members and what have you you then have this sort of really obvious push against everything that the G20 stands for 
Well, I think what's interesting is um, the G7 uh, is seen as the, the developed world, isn't it? And BRICS, obviously, the developing world. And yet the G20 spans the two, doesn't it? So if you want to avoid this sort of massive geopolitical dislocation between the developing world and the developed world, then the, G10, the G20 has real uh, potential. Um, so, uh, you know, there's a lot... Uh, riding on it, uh, its success really. I think, un- unfortunately, that also is is part of it. The, tr- the the struggles that it faces because it. I mean, the the theme of this meeting is is one Earth, one family, one future. Except that, um, as we've seen with China and India, there are huge rows. Uh, there are also other sort of uh, arguments going on because this breadth of appeal across the the world, the developed world, and the developing world, also means that the G twenty is almost by its very nature, split, isn't it? And it seems to be particularly difficult at the moment. And I think, obviously, one of the things that Xi Jinping is doing is trying to make it clear that this is very much about him. It's that will he go, won't he go? The whole focus is on him, not India. Obviously, there's this tension between India and China on on borders, which is uh, which has been going on for some time. Also, I think it's worth in, interesting little fact that uh, China issued published its official map of the world recently, mm. which really upset a lot of neighbours when they suddenly realised that they things that they thought were theirs were apparently Chinese. So I think this is probably another example of that wolf warrior diplomacy that uh, that China has been really stepping up over the last few years. How much do you think Ukraine is to blame over this? The fact that Ukraine suddenly made people assess their positions. And this time last year, when they were all going off to Bali, they all, the G20 managed to jo- issue a joint statement. Mm. This is just, we're nowhere near that this year. I think this is really the, the whole factor behind everything. Um, As one Western official working on this has said to me, all in the lead up to this G20, China has been obstructionist. They've been trying to stop any consensus we can get. And to be honest, when you go into the G20 with these players around the table and you start talking about the war in Ukraine, well, obviously, Russia says it's not a war. China says the same. Uh, Brazil says, well, let's call it something else. You know, there's this point to where you cannot have a consensus view on something that is so black and white to the rest of the G20 uh, when one of your players is involved in launching an an unprovoked aggression um, and territorial invasion. So I think that's, that's there. The other thing to, I think, illustrate here is Putin's not going to the G20. Obviously, there's an ICC arrest warrant out for Putin. But he is planning to go to China in a couple of months' time. And so, again, we just see the underlining of what that no-limits partnership that Xi and Putin signed on the eve of Putin's invasion of Ukraine is starting to mean, and that it wasn't just a rhetoric, it wasn't just an up yours to the West. We are actually seeing this has meat and bones And I think the BRICS enlargement is something that the West should worry about. I don't think we've got any, uh, there's no sense that it's going to rival the G20 in any way or the G7, as Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor in the US, calls it the steering committee of the free world, which I think is a pretty dreadful term. But I think what's becoming obvious is as much as Xi and Putin boycott the G20 and it's got its own inability to come to consensus views on the issues that are literally dividing the world. Uh, I do think we're going to come down to, well, it's the G7 and enlarged G7 where countries like Australia and Japan also, uh, sorry, Australia and, and other countries are invited to sit alongside. And we will see, I think the BRICS perhaps take some formation. I think the addition of the Gulf states is really critical in that. 
Which is interesting when you think that the those who are not going to the G20, Russia, China, and you know India stuck sort of waiting there with all the hotel rooms ready to be filled, and you know how many places do we set at the table? Uh, we're living in a world where you have incredibly strong leaders who take such a protectionist view that that globalism and cooperation are now becoming a dirty word in certain parts of the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also, um, you know, the G20 uh, has these internal contradictions and rivalries and stuff. But it's worth remembering that BRICS has them plus some, doesn't it, as well? You think of members of like Saudi Arabia and Iran, for instance. Uh, Most of them are not democracies. You've got a theocracy again in the case of Iran. So um, if you think that there are tensions in the G20 and even the G7, then it's, it's as I say, considerably more with BRICS. So um, I think the question, I suppose, is, is it better that these countries come together uh, in the BRICS coalition and at least they're talking to each other and, you know, they've got a, a reasonable case, certainly, when you look at the size of the uh, number of people, world population they represent, the size of the world economy they represent. So certainly, um, I think, you know, they've got a... BRICS has a real legitimacy. Um, It's just a question, I suppose, of whether they can have any kind of cohesion and whether they can have a sort of serious, helpful dialogue... Trialogue, would it be, with the G7 and the G20? I think, Emma, the the final thing to add here is that China is, I think, for the first time through the highest level saying, we don't care. We don't care anymore. You know, gloves are off. This is where we stand now. And for a long time, uh, and, you, and you saw it in the words of James Cleverley, the UK Foreign Secretary, making his trip to Beijing last week, or oh, we can't solve any global crisis without China around the table. And this is the language that everybody uses to justify trying to play nice with China, whereas China turns around and says, I don't care. I don't care about your G20. I don't care about these things that you want to try and collaborate on and these global issues that we must solve together if they're going to be solved at all. I am simply out and I've got my own agenda and I'm over here. And if you look at things like disease control, which is one of the often cited examples of why we need to work with China because we've got to stop the spread of the next pandemic, China willingly let COVID out of Wuhan deliberately when it knew it was transmissible. So it did nothing to stop that pandemic. We've not held it to account on that. What's to say it has any incentive to work with us next time to stop the spread of another? On climate change, I mean, it's a China-first policy, and, and this is not a criticism of China. America's doing the same with its IRA. These policies are national interest policies. And so I think that there is a sharpening coming to the fore here. And a lot of Western countries that have touted this rhetoric of, well, we must keep being nice to China because we can't solve these issues. I think it's going to be shown up by this decision if if she doesn't turn up. And I think what's really important here as well is, you know, there's obviously there's China's foreign policy, but then there's also China's economy, isn't there? And that is, um, you know, with the threat of deflation, growth has been, by Chinese terms, standards, pretty anemic. You've got problems with uh, the, the, uh, the real estate economy, which is massive part of China's wealth. You've got a fifth of all young people in China out of work, disaffection amongst young people. Um, and, and there are an awful lot of economic problems that China is facing. And of course, the whole point about the Xi Jinping mantra, if you like, is it's a performance mandate, isn't it? He knows he's not elected. He knows he's not accountable to anybody. 
But what he can say is, at least I'm running the economy properly. And now if that's not happening, um, you know, I'm not suggesting there's going to be a revolution next week, of course, but it does suggest that um, that Xi Jinping is in a bit of trouble at home. And of course, the real worry, we know what happens when dictators face trouble at home. What do they do? They look abroad, don't they, to focus um, any kind of animosity or whatever overseas, whatever. So I'm, I'm thinking of Taiwan and things. And, you know, as you say, Latika, perhaps an even more kind of aggressive uh, China first foreign policy. Um, let's turn our attention to British politics for a little while, because um, as you said at the top of the programme, Simon, school's back. Politics is back, which sort of makes our hearts sink a little bit. I know there's quite a lot of uh, stuff rumbling around in the British papers this weekend about um, how it is, I think it's a year since Liz Truss came in and completely, well, I don't actually have the word, well, I do, but I can't say it on the radio, uh, about what uh, she did to the economy. Um, But, you know, there's a lot of that, but people are looking forward now to a really bumpy few months and weeks in, in politics. Dare I say it, having just skipped abroad for a little while, there is a definite sense now that international affairs do not concern themselves with the United Kingdom in the way that they once do. They don't appear in the newspapers as they used to be. Um, talking to people internationally, they are they're just getting on with life without without Britain. And strangely enough, nobody's whipping out the handkerchiefs anymore. They're just saying, well, you're not here. The world's a nice big place. We'll go and look elsewhere. Rishi Sunak will be very depressed to hear that, not just because he's Prime Minister, but also because he has made a big thing of trying to restore Britain's international reputation after the, the trust year. Um, yeah, what am I talking about? It wasn't even a year, was it? Trust month or whatever, the debacle days, there. And Exactly. Um, and also Boris Johnson's t- t- time in office, uh, both as Prime Minister and also as Foreign Secretary. So, um, I mean, obviously there's going to be a, an internal focus in, in British politics as we get the run-up to the general election. But certainly, I think um, one of the things the Tories will have tried to do under Rishi Sunak and also Keir Starmer, the, the opposition leader, if he becomes prime minister, will be working very hard to do, will be to re-establish uh, Britain's role on the world stage. So that just doesn't mean, you know, the G7 uh, relations with um, uh, the US, but also uh, what might happen with the EU, because um, I think it's really interesting to see how uh, a, perhaps a future Labour government, and the polls suggest there may well be one, uh, would try and develop closer working relationships with the EU, even though nobody in their right mind in British politics is ever allowed to use the rejoin word because that would be um, electoral suicide. But uh, there's a feeling that certainly, you know, it works for Britain in diplomatic circles, but also economically as well to to improve relations with the European Union. Um, As a result, one would imagine that the Brits would be looking elsewhere, you know, unable to formally uh, rebuild ties with the European Union. They they have to be seen to be nice to everybody else. But there's an article in the Sunday Times today which talks about the former um, Defence Secretary Ben Wallace sparks US diplomatic row over Chinook threats. Apparently President Biden refused to back the Defence Defence Secretary for a top job at NATO great. Uh, It says Ben Wallace was accused of sparking an incident with the US after threatening to cancel an order of American-made military helicopters intended for Britain's special forces. The former Defence Secretary issued a warning directly to his counterpart in the Pentagon last month before an agreed position had been reached among ministers back in London. This isn't wildly helpful, is it, Latika, when you actually have the UK picking a row with the US in terms of defence procurement? 
I actually think Ben Wallace would have been an outstanding NATO SG. I know there is a view that it should and kind of has to be a former head of state, um, but I think an exception could have been made. Wallace has been a fantastic uh, responder to the war in Ukraine and the UK has, uh, besides all your foreign policy critiques with, with which I vehemently agree, Emma, before I think on Ukraine, the, the UK has been an outstanding uh, example of what it can do and, and how it can still lead on, on issues. And Ben Wallace has been at the forefront of that. He's also been a figure of continuity amid a lot of change. And I think that that has been key. So I actually think it was churlish for the Biden administration to turn him down and not consider him, particularly when there was no other better candidate, as we've seen with Jens Stoltenberg, being extended for another time and he was really ready to go. So it's not like he was begging on to stay. There was a very good candidate. But because he's British and because he's Defence Secretary, no, it didn't seem to suit the, the Biden White House. Now, this suggestion in the Sunday Times that he's meddling perhaps in... Uh, defence procurement contracts related to the US. Well, Wallace himself has vehemently rejected this and said, look, I first raised concerns about this two years ago relating to the cost and whether this was value for money. And we know that there are tight defence budgets. Nevertheless, radicals like this don't get written where there's uh, no uh, smoke. Um, So you can, uh, I think, read into it that he's gone back to it and said, well, you know what, look, I can still create some trouble for you if you you want to be like this. Not great, but obviously the alliance will withstand that. We've got about a minute to talk about this a little bit more in terms of, you know, Britain's standing internationally now is, is, as we mentioned, you know, a bit tricky, but what what are the papers talking about? What Britain has to do internally to sort itself out in the next few week, few month, weeks and months? Well, it's um, it's obviously the the main thing is the economy, um, and I think that you know the the fact that uh, the Britain had this upgrade or you know to our economic growth prospects, which means that we are not the worst in the G seven. Um, as certainly <laughs> few has certainly helped the Tories, and you know if, especially if you look at the the plight of Germany, whose economy is you know more or less in recession now. Then, in that rather sad sort of pecking order, if you like, of, of um, thriving economies, then Europe, sorry, then the e, then, then the UK does seem to be doing slightly better. So um, I think it'll be interesting, as I say, once we get this election over with, whoever takes. It walks into number 10, whether it's Rishi Sunak for a second time or Keir Starmer, then obviously I think there will be much more of a focus on international relations and building those bridges. And as you say, Latika, given that I think the UK feels that it's had a pretty good or is having a pretty good war, if you can have such a thing, uh, perhaps building on that success to restore its uh, reputation. Latika, we have 30 seconds. Tell us what you're doing in Tokyo. Oh, I'm going to study a disaster resilience in the Indo-Pacific, which will also take me to Australia and Fiji and Tonga over time. Um, so I'm very, very excited to be making my first trip to Tokyo, eating lots of sashimi and Emma riding a bullet train. It's an important thing, isn't it? I cannot wait. We begin. We end the programme as we began it, <laughs> on trains. A big thanks to all my guests today, uh, our editorial director, Tyler Brule, and Letika Burke and Simon Brooke, and James T- Chambers too. Many thanks to the producer, Desiree Bandley, and our studio manager, Mariella Bevan. I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle on Sunday returns next week. But until then, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. Listener.